0: It just didn't make any sense. Clothing and equipment was scattered about the heavy snow surrounding the camp. At first glance, the camp looked to have been ransacked, as if a wild animal had tossed and torn everything nearby in search of something. A closer look revealed an eerie and frightening truth. The tent had been cut from the inside, and nine campers had fled into the snow and sub-zero temperatures. Many of them weren't even wearing shoes, let alone the proper thermal clothing to survive. What was so terrifying, so alarming, that they fled from warmth and friends and into certain death? Just what happened in the Dyatlov Pass incident? Salutations, dearest and blessed listeners, and welcome once again to Channel FM Radio. I am Thomas, devoted servant to the King in Yellow, And I will be your horrifying host for the duration of this broadcast. It's a strange day up here on the hill. The days are growing longer, the nights shorter, and the temperature is rising once more. That doesn't save me from the weather, however, and now a heavy storm is pushing against these rotting, decrepit walls. A shrill and windy whistle blows through this ruined radio station. Droplets fall through cracks in stone and wood, a constant, ceaseless pitter-patter. I've done my best to soundproof this derelict little room, but it's, it's just one of those days. I've always loved this weather. Weather that keeps you indoors. Weather that's almost dangerous to be out in. Speaking of dangerous weather, I have a question for you, dear listener. Imagine for a moment that you're a hiker out on a skiing expedition in the Ural Mountains, a mountain range in Russia and Kazakhstan in early February. You may camp for the night in the thick snow on the side of the Kolat Sickle or Dead Mountain, but it is so cold that you need thermals to sleep in, let alone travel anywhere. It is freezing cold, with temperatures going as low as minus 30 degrees centigrade or minus 22 Fahrenheit. So, what would possess you to cut your tent open from the inside and flee into the biting cold without being dressed, running into certain death from frostbite and exposure? That is the exact same question posed by the investigators that found what remained of the camp made by the dying hikers. Their tent had been cut from the inside, and what remains of it was loosely covered in snow. At the edge of the nearby forest, the remains of a fire sat, flanked by the corpses of two hikers. A short distance from them, three more bodies, presumably on their way back to camp, and all of them understandably perished from exposure and hypothermia. The remaining four were found some 75 metres away, but their cause of death is... not so simply explained. The investigators that found their camp also discovered the diaries and cameras that the Dyatlov group was using to record their expedition's progress, so we have a good idea of what happened up until the final night. Like all good tales, I'll start at the beginning, though I apologize for my terrible Russian pronunciation, Uh, but please, sit back, relax, and listen to this fascinatingly macabre and dark tale. In Sverdlovsk Oblast, 1959, Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old engineering student from the Ural Polytechnic Institute, organized a trip for he and eight of his fellow students to hike across the Ural Mountains. Each of them was a knowledgeable and skilled hiker, with ski tour experience and a grade 2 hiker certificate. Upon their return, they would each receive their grade 3 certificate, the highest rank available in the Soviet Union. Together, they planned a route that would lead them to the far northern reaches of the Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River. With everything sufficiently planned and proper, their route was approved by the committee, but an additional member would be joining them for his own certification, taking the total number of the group to 10. altogether their names were Igor Dyatlov, Yuri Doroshenko, Ludmila Dubinina, Georgi Krivonischenko, Alexander Kolevatov, Zinaida Komolgorova, Rustam Slobodin, Nikolai Thibyo-Brignols, Semyon Zolotaryov, and Yuri Yudin. The trip to Vizai was an unassuming truck drive on the 25th of January, 1959, a trip like any other. Vizai was a tiny and desolate village, the last inhabited settlement to the north. I imagine the Dyatlov group mistakenly believed it prefaced the expedition perfectly, a picturesque and isolated journey that would be fun, but safe. They stayed overnight at a small village, purchasing loaves of bread from the local shop to carbo-load with. The next day, as the group go through their last-minute preparations, Dyatlov promises that he will send a telegram to Vizai once they reach the end of their journey safely a telegram that never came. On the 27th of January, the Dyatlov group set off into the mountains on their final expedition. Their first destination was Gura or Toten, but the easy progress of the hikers was paused when Yudin stated that he would have to turn back. Yudin suffered from a few health conditions, he had rheumatism and a congenital heart defect, but an incredible pain in his knee joint forced him to reconsider his trip. This decision would go on to save his life, however, as he would shortly become the only survivor of the Diatlov group. He went on to die at the ripe old age of 73 in 2013. Their diaries state that on the 31st of January, the group were preparing to cross the area now known as the Diatlov Pass, named after the infamous incident. On the edge of the dark and wooded valley, They cached their excess supplies and equipment with intent to use them on the return venture, and made the final part of their ill-fated trip. They took photos as they progressed, and their diaries show just how excited they were to be there. "'I wonder what awaits us on this trip,' one wrote. "'What will we encounter?' wrote another." From here, details get a little foggy. It's the end of the journey documented by the Dyatlov group themselves, and so what we know has been pieced together by the search party that discovered them, investigators that searched the scene, and theory crafting. after it all. We assumed that they planned to make camp on the opposite side of the pass, but due to foul conditions, they lost direction and ended up more west than originally planned, near the remote peak of Kolatsikl, the Dead Mountain. There was a nearby forest just under a mile away that could have offered them some shelter from the snowstorms, In hindsight, the natural barrier offered by the thick trees may have made a difference for whatever happened to them, and we don't know for sure why Dyatlov's group chose to ignore it. Perhaps they wanted to practice camping on an incline, or they wanted to avoid losing the altitude that they'd gained. Regardless, they came to camp in the wide and open snow on the side of the dead mountain. Before he'd left the group, Dyatlov had told Yudin that he expected their trip to take a little longer than was previously expected, With the harsh weather, it's common that similar expeditions would focus on safety rather than speed, and take an additional day or two. It was for this reason that, when the 12th of February passed, 12 days after their hiking started, not a lot was actually done about their missing. Days passed, then a week, and still there had been no word from the party. On the 20th of February, the families of the Dyatlov group had understandably become worried. They contacted the university, and a search party was gathered from volunteers of students and teachers, with military and police joining later. They were flown to the mountains via helicopter, where they split into smaller parties and began searching the mountain range. On the 26th of February, almost a month after the group's last recorded message, a search party found their abandoned camp on the slope of the mountain, a torn, snow-covered and ruined tent surrounded by tracks and scattered equipment. Within the tent, they found the vast majority of the group's belongings blankets, rucksacks, boots, food, alcohol, and even the cameras and diaries that would provide an insight into their journey. Closer inspection revealed that the tent had been cut in such a way that could only have been done from someone inside the tent. Why would someone cut a tent that they would need later on? The safety and retention of warmth overnight was necessary for their hike, and without it, they risked exposure and frostbite in negative 20-degree weather. What terrifying thing possessed them to ruin such a vital piece of equipment in such a way? Whatever it was, to do so risked death. If that wasn't strange enough, the majority of the group's boots were located within the tent, and tracks in the snow showed that people had fled from the tent wearing only socks, or even barefoot. The frozen tracks continued for some five to 10 meters before they simply, disappeared. The search party returned to the others and reported their findings, bringing police investigators to the ruined camp. They continued their search, and eventually they reached the edge of the forest that I mentioned earlier. Under a large Siberian pine, they finally found the remains of a campfire and the first two bodies, Doroshenko and Krivonishenko. The two were shoeless and near-naked, clothed only in their underwear. The fireplace was small and desperate, the branches of the trees above them had been broken up to about five meters high, implying that a member of the group had climbed for one reason or another, likely to try and find a vantage point. Three more bodies were found in between the campfire and the ruined tent, Kolmogorova, Slobodin, and Diatlov himself. Judging on their positions and poses, investigators assume they perished from exposure and the cold on their way back to the campsite. They were, at least, more clothed than the other two. Five bodies in total had been found, but four more were still missing. An inquest was started immediately, and examiners inspected the bodies, while investigators continued to search for the remaining four. It took over four months before they were finally found – Dubinina, Kolevatov, Brinyols, and Zolotaryov. They were discovered on the 4th of May, in a ravine almost 250 feet away from the group by the forest's edge hidden beneath over 13 feet of snow. On their discovery, the mystery only deepened. The medical examiners concluded rather simply that the first five found had died of hypothermia, and the whole ordeal was declared a tragic accident. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but the examiners did not believe it to be a fatal wound. Strangely, 12-year-old Yuri Kunsevich, who attended some of the hikers' funerals, claimed that their skin was a deep brown tan color, Doroshenko's body was also reported to have a grey foam coming from his right cheek and a grey liquid oozing from his mouth. Curiouser and curiouser, the wounds on the four found within the ravine changed the narrative of what might have happened. Three of the four found had fatal injuries. Someone or something had inflicted major skull damage upon Brignoles, and major chest fractures to Dubinina and Zolotaryov. According to forensic expert Boris Vosrozdeni, the drastic force required to do such would have had to have been immense, far more than what a human is capable of, similar to the force of a car crash. Even stranger, the body showed no external marks or injuries, as if the wounds had occurred inside the body spontaneously. Post-mortem injuries were also present. Dubinina was missing her eyes, tongue, lips, and pieces of facial flesh and skull. Zolotyov was missing his eyes, and Kolovatov his eyebrows. The bodies suggested that they had died at different times as they were wearing each other's clothes. When one perished, the others would take their garments to better keep themselves warm. But just when we thought it couldn't get any stranger, they discover traces of radiation on the bodies and clothing, and third-degree burns. The official conclusion given was that they died of a compelling natural force, and the inquest was closed in late May 1959. It was a puzzling conundrum for the authorities to say the least, and very little of it made sense. To summarise, someone, or something, terrified them so awfully that they cut their tent from the inside and fled naked into snow and sub-zero temperatures. Whatever it was, it warranted risking certain death by hypothermia, The majority died of it, but some were killed by grievous wounds that could only be caused by a force similar to a car crash, an injury that left no external mark on the outside of their bodies. Not only this, but both radiation and burns were found on some of those bodies. With no clear reason for what happened, there are dozens of theories. In 2019, the case was reopened for investigation, but only three possible reasons were given a hurricane, an avalanche, or a slab avalanche. None of these possibilities give a convincing reason for the radiation, the burns, or the terrible physical injuries inflicted, however. And as such, explanations are as varied as the people that speak of this mystery. To help you draw your own conclusion, dearest listener, I'll go over a handful for you. Firstly, an avalanche. This was one of the official explanations given, and it explains the bizarre and life-threatening behavior of the hikers. If the party believed an avalanche was approaching them, the rapid rumbling of a deadly cascade as tons upon tons of frigid white death approach at a crushing velocity or, well, I'd probably cut my way out of the tent and run for the trees too, the trees of the forest would act like a natural barrier against the avalanche, drastically reducing the killing pressure of the sweeping snow. It is better, after all, to repair your tent later than risk being buried alive. It also explains why they ran for the trees, and why they were all wearing so little clothing after immediately leaping out of bed. However, the investigators and search party stated that they did not see any signs of an avalanche occurring. Analysis of the mountain's topography indicates that an avalanche would have simply passed by the camp, not swept over it. Atop this, both Dyatlov and Zolotayev were extremely experienced skiers, and it's unlikely that they would have agreed to camp in an area that might see them killed in their sleep by an avalanche. An examination of the footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with a group fleeing for their lives. They were walking, even barefoot, at a leisurely and relaxed pace. Another explanation could be catabatic winds. This is a somewhat rare event, but it can be incredibly violent. A katabatic wind is described as a drainage wind, and are also known as fall winds. It's a wind that carries high-density air from a high elevation down a slope, such as the very slope that the group had made camp at, for example. When these winds are concentrated, they can reach speeds of a hurricane force, which would have made staying within the tent impossible. If this was the case, then covering the tent with snow to stop it blowing away is a rational and explainable decision. One explanation that sounds strange at first is the idea that they were the unknown victims of a Soviet military test. This theory claims that the hikers had camped beneath a chosen site for a test of parachute mines, and when awoken by the explosions, they fled for their lives. There are records of parachute mines being used in the area around the time that the hikers were there, and it would also explain the third degree burns some suffered on the frigid mountainside. The shockwave of an explosion could also create those horrific injuries suffered by some without leaving much in the way of an external sign. Related to this theory, some claim that they were the victims of nuclear tests, not mines. This would explain the accounts of the bodies having strangely coloured skin and the traces of radiation left on their skin and clothes. It also explains why the files were kept secret and why the government refused to release much information. It was a cover-up. The concealment of such information was common procedure in the USSR. An additional theory, and one for the adamant cryptid fans of this broadcast, is that they were pursued and hunted by an abominable snowman or a yeti. If we assume that these cryptids are territorial, then a yeti may have wished to kill them simply to remove an encroaching threat. Brynjol's skull damage and the rib fractures to Dubinina and Zolotaryov bore no external marks as we know. The injuries could have been inflicted by a large creature that simply picked them up and crushed them to death. Such a monstrous creature would also be a reason to flee the tent in a hurry. We've discussed a number of theories, but what's yours, dear listener? Is there one I've not mentioned here? One you wholeheartedly agree with? Or is this all just a bunch of nonsense to you? Whatever your opinion, let me know. On the end of that segment, we moved swiftly onto this broadcast's Cryptid of the Week. It's one that we've already mentioned once in this episode, one that ties in very nicely to the subject. The Yeti, or the Abominable Snowman. Put yourself in the socks of the Diatlov group, and picture it. You and your companions have just settled for the night on the side of a mountain slope. You're tired from a long and hard day's hike, and so you close your eyes with only the sound of snoring and the whistle of the wind to keep you company. There's nothing up here in this picturesque wilderness, and you're further than you've ever been from civilization. There's not another soul for miles upon miles in any direction. It's at that point that something begins to feel wrong. It's that primal fear, the one that raises the hairs on the back of your neck, the long-honed senses from the days of our ancestors when something ferocious and hungry would stare from the dark, the feeling of being watched. You sit up when you hear it, the long and loud howl that echoes through the valley, bouncing off the mountain slopes to a deafening degree. You don't know where it's coming from. All of you are up right now, exchanging panicked and worried looks among yourselves in the darkness of your tent. You hear the crunching, heavy footfalls that descend deep into the snow, a wide stride that eventually stops just outside your tent. A shifting noise as the tent is pushed. That's when the first of your party screams, echoed by another, Angered or frightened by this, the creature grows more irritated. A deafening roar only feet away and a violent shaking of the tent. In blind panic, one of your group grabs the nearest knife and cuts through the tent, fleeing into the dark. You peer over your shoulder as you follow and catch a glimpse of the creature in the corner of your eye. A shaggy beast, over ten feet tall with a white coat of pristine fur, perfect for hunting in the snow. Humanoid, sharp teeth each as long as your fingers, and terrifyingly strong. As you disappear into the forest, the last thing you see is it lift one of your friends high into the air, and a sickening snap as they twist at the neck. The creature you've just seen is the mythical yeti, otherwise known as the abominable snowman, and one that's reported in many different cultures. It's a prominent figure in Himalayan mythology. The Lepcha people, indigenous to Nepal, worship a glacier being as a god of the hunt. It's also reported that the people of the Bon religion, a Tibetan religion similar to Buddhism, believe that the blood of a large ape-like creature called a wild man was used in religious ceremonies. It was said to carry a large club-like stone and made a whistling, whooshing sound as its call. It's also known in Russian mythology as the Chuchuna and is known to prowl the desolate icelands of Siberia. It's a man-eater, loving nothing more than to feast on the flesh of any poor and unfortunate soul that it manages to catch. In 1832, Englishman Brian Hodgson, experienced adventurer and published trekker, claimed to have seen a tall bipedal creature covered in long, dark hair while in northern Nepal. The two of them locked eyes, and it fled from him out of sight in apparent fear, a myriad of accounts occur in the 20th century from a variety of sources, but the incredible aspect is the supposed physical evidence that accompanied them. At Kumjung Monastery, kept within an airtight and sealed box, was the supposed actual scalp of a real yeti. Unfortunately, after a DNA test, it was revealed that the hair was that of a coarse-haired, hoofed animal, likely a beast of burden and not the yeti itself feces was also found reported to be from the elusive creature and the discoverers also found a parasite among the fecal matter that couldn't be identified like the sasquatch or bigfoot footprints are the most common evidence found that these creatures exist not a year goes by without us seeing another account of witnesses meeting the evasive yeti and the people that find it bringing photographs plaster molds or sketches of the creature's humongous footprints speaking of the sasquatch and bigfoot Is it possible that the Yeti could be related to them? A distant cousin, perhaps? While the former are more adapted to live and hunt in forests and swamps, blending into their environment effortlessly to the extent where we are unsure even today of their existence, it seems reasonable to think that the Yetis are likewise suited for their environment of ice and snow. It's understandable why some would believe that the creature exists, with stories and inconclusive evidence cropping up so often, but the creature being in such a difficult location to map or track, the myth continues to exist even to this day. It's a cryptid that's inspired countless novels, films, and folktales, and likely will countless times more. What's your opinion though, dear listener? Is the yeti real? Is it the missing link in our ancestral history? Is it simply a, a Bigfoot on vacation, or is it just a lot of damp snow? Do you have an opinion you want to share on anything we've covered this episode? Do you have a request for a story or a mystery you want read on the air? A cryptid you want investigated? A suggestion, criticism, or something else? Then reach out to me at channelfm at gmail You can also follow the show's Twitter at handle at channelfm, and get in touch with me there also. That means we've reached the end of our episode for this week, and as usual, I will bid you all goodnight with a frightening fact. We've spoken a lot this episode of the freezing terrors and everything that accompanies them, but did you know that one of the symptoms of hypothermia, and, scarily, one that means you are usually nearing the end, is the sudden sense of being overheated? In this case, usually, the sufferer feels the need to discard their clothing, despite the fact that this only hastens their demise. This is known as Paradoxical Undressing. Good night, dear listeners, and remember, stay cool. The songs used in this episode are Spring Thaw" and Mesmerize, and they are made by Kevin McLeod. They are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. His website is Incomputech.com, and he makes excellent music, perfect for podcasts such as this one. Give him a look and a listen.